an accident in California. Less two accidents in one week. Who's putting the lid on this, the police? A recording from a stranger. Get on the ride, Harry. A drop in Virginia. Harry. Yeah. Remember what happens when you don't follow directions. And a man in the middle on the ride of his life. They're over the lift. It's too late to stop them now. Let's go. all you Ron and Russa Colas, maybe? Welcome back to another tremendous episode of All You Ever Think About Is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast to cover the entire career of Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. I am still your host, Christian Huey. Without delving into the details, I had to take some time off for family reasons, so I really do appreciate your patience over the last few months, and I am happy to be back in the saddle hosting this here General Interest podcast. It's hard to know where to begin since our last episode in catching you all up to what's current in Sparksland, and anyway, there's an excellent chance that you're already privy to it all. The most recent video made for the new album, A Steady Drip Drip Drip, is the existential threat animated by the inimitable Syriac, whose mutated, organic, pulsing, fractal-forming art style is immediately recognizable here. It's a great complement to the kind of free-form pseudo-jazz musical stylings of the song, and if you haven't already watched it 27 times, pause this, go and do it. As a bonus... Watch the additional companion video, How to Make a Music Video. Meanwhile, you can also check out a whole slew now of Ron's lyrically speaking videos where he recites for you in his endearing deadpan lyrics from Sparks' songs past and present. Finally, tour dates have been announced! Unfortunately, the first scheduled show is still eight months away. Let's just hope that these dates stick. Finally, I just wanted to clear this pebble out of my mental shoe. It was pointed out to me by a longtime listener some time ago of this podcast that I uh, misquoted a lyric in an earlier episode. When I read the lyrics for Indiscreets Under the Table with Her, I mistakenly recited a line as, People all around the world are having only rice and beans. The actual line, of course, goes, people all around the world are having only rice and tea. Not sure how that one slipped out from between my lips in that way, but I would be remiss if I didn't address it. Remember, you can always email me at podcastsparks at gmail.com or join our Facebook page where I post updates about the pod. But now, without further ado, not adieu, by the way, common mistake, here is, finally... Episode 17, Big Beat, Part 1. Hey, 
What must George Seagal and Henry Fonda's agents have told their respective clients about the disaster film Roller Coaster, which was barely in the production pipeline by the summer of 1976? That disaster movies were box office gold, and this would be just the event that would deliver a well-earned renaissance to their acting careers? Sure, they were past their prime, but they were screen legends, especially Fonda. Why would they stoop to taking on starring roles in a low-budget schlockfest? That was really only a thinly-veiled advertisement for the brand-new surround sound technology. Sorry, make that Sen surround technology, not surround sound. But they both signed on and joined a cast that included a young Timothy Bottoms, as well as other long-established, well-respected Hollywood performers, not to mention a 12-year-old newcomer named Helen Hunt. The planned musical guests, however, the band that were to play themselves, playing to a crowd of theme park attendees, said no. Director James Goldstone wanted the hot new rock band KISS to feature in his film, but whatever the reasons were, KISS declined. That left Goldstone scrambling to find a replacement for one of the most pivotal scenes in the film, in which a live rock band serves unwittingly to distract a throng of thrill-seekers just long enough for Timothy Bottoms' villain to plant bombs along the tracks of the gargantuan steel roller coaster that was the main set piece for the movie's action. Although the chain of events isn't clear, Goldstone reached out to Sparks to take the place of Kiss, and, for whatever their reasons, Sparks said yes. What made director James Goldstone consider Sparks as his consolation prize for failing to book the insanely popular Kiss? Whoever had his ear likely knew Sparks was not the obvious number two choice to use as movie bait to reel in all the testosterone and weed-fueled teenagers, mostly boys, that he had his box office sights set squarely upon. But then again, maybe a friend of a friend happened to pop in an 8-track of Big Beat in Goldstone's office in early 1977 and provided no context for the musical proceedings. It's an entertaining filter to push the experience of listening to Big Beat through as an ersatz KISS record. And it's a perspective that makes for an interesting rationale for the album's existence, while at the same time, it could help explain why it's often underrated and undervalued by fans who probably weren't fans of KISS and the KISS sound. While it's the Ramones who cited Sparks as early influences, and not KISS to my knowledge, and it's tempting to hear Big Beat as imitative flattery toward the trailblazing new punk rock band from Queens, Big Beat, of course, was not a response to, nor a tip of the hat to the Ramones' legendary debut record, nor is Big Beat a punk rock record in as much as such a thing existed in 1976. Big Beat rarely invokes the speed-addled 3-4 chord delivery of the Ramones. Sure, the lyrical themes of alienation and boredom are shot through Big Beat all over, but uh, the songs lack the kind of working-class authenticity, the grit of uh, the Ramones, and it doesn't get as seedy or depressing as Joey and Company's quasi-autobiographical sketches uh, could be. Big Beat is not punk, although 
They may live a couple blocks away from punk. That Ron and Russell had respect for Joey and company is well understood, but instead of Ramones-style New York punk, Big Beat really feels more like a response to the simplified pseudo-heavy metal of KISS. And although I've never come across a published opinion about KISS from the mouths of Ron and Russell Mail, it's a fair bet that Sparks didn't think much of KISS as musicians or as artists. After all, they didn't even have exactly the highest praise for Queen when that band was starting out. But it would be criminally unfair to judge any of Queen's four players as less than masterful musicians. Meanwhile, stories abound about producer Bob Ezrin having to call timeout during the recording of Kiss's 1976 album Destroyer to give Gene Simmons and company a crash course in music theory. Remember, this was not their first album. If there was one thing Ron and Russell definitely appreciated, it was professionalism. Okay, so on the other hand, going back to the Ramones, they weren't exactly known for their musical acumen either, especially starting out, yet that band and Sparks did have an affinity uh, for one another. Unlike the Ramones, Kiss were not punk, but they did embrace a similar DIY aesthetic that became a badge of honor for the first punk rockers. What Kiss lacked in chops, they made it for an attitude, and this attitude translated into undeniable commercial success by 1976, even though they were never the darlings of rock critics. They may not have been stellar musicians nor high-minded artists, but they had a canny knack for absorbing and then transmitting right back out the urgent, uncomplicated concerns and desires of the youth of the mid-1970s, specifically middle and working class white suburban teenage boys. This was in no small part due to the fact that the players in KISS were average white suburban teenage boys, or at least they had been just a few years earlier. They were all after the same things, girls, drugs and booze, and of course, to rock and roll all night and party every day. Talking of angst-filled teens, Ron Mayle had never been one to shy away from writing songs about insecure, sexually frustrated young men. Although his lyrics were usually too obtuse and his arrangements too fussy to satisfy the same rock and roll catharsis that Kiss showed capable of delivering. However, if Sparks was going to transition into being an all-American rock band and one finally with some mainstream commercial appeal, and if they wanted the mid-70s teen zeitgeist, well, they could do worse than offering American listeners a sort of thinking man's Kiss album. Okay, huge caveat here. There is absolutely no evidence through interviews or anything else that Sparks had Kiss on the brain when they cut Big Beat. I mean, after all, they weren't even chosen to be Kiss's replacement in Roller Coaster until months after their own record was released. But yeah, maybe Goldstone was onto something when he decided Sparks were a suitable musical substitute, at least based off of the songs used in the movie Filler Up and Big Boy. So if we continue with this Sparks 1976 equals pseudo-Kiss thought experiment, we come to a central question regarding Big Beat's musical aesthetic is Big Beat a parody of the musical style of Kiss and those similar to Kiss, or is it an homage? My vote is more with the former, although it's hard to imagine Ron and Russell recording an entire album of music in a genre or style they didn't at least somewhat enjoy themselves. 
Maybe it's useful to think of Big Beat as a genre exercise, bound up with social commentary about the young, white, disaffected, suburban culture of the sort that Kiss's music appealed to in 1976. Listening to Big Beat, it's often unclear when Ron is deploying diesel-powered irony through his songwriting versus when he's approaching sincerity. And while Sparks was never shy about straddling the irony-slash-sincerity divide, the question about that divide begs to be applied not just to the lyrical content of Ron's songs, which here are mostly filled with the laments of unambitious but angst-filled young white men, uh, but also to the actual music being played here. Is this new band on Big Beat really rocking out and unironically enjoying themselves? Or are they just pantomiming the thrusts of quasi-metal garage rock? The fun factor was never in question when listening to the records of Sparks' UK era. Here, it's not so clear. Over the years, Ron Russell, Rupert Holmes, and the album's um, session players, that's Hilly Michaels, Sal Maida, and Jeff Salen, have given wildly diverging appraisals of Big Beat. Among Sparks fans, the album is a distinctly polarizing one, but much like the earnest, straightforward Southern Democrat the U.S. would elect president at the start of Big Beat's concert tour, it often feels like a healthy and necessary transitional move. But first, let's recap where we left off with our heroes in the previous episode. At the end of the final American leg of the 1975 tour in support of Indiscreet, Ron and Russell took a page from their own history and fired their entire band. Save, of course, themselves. By leaving three devoted and talented players in the lurch, and this was after they had helped Sparks achieve mammoth success over three albums, at least in Europe. Ron and Russ had ruffled the feathers of their management team of uh, James Hewlett and Joseph Fleury. Both men considered the sacking of Dinky, Trevor, and Ian to be a serious strategic mistake and one that could have negative consequences for the trajectory of Sparks' career, at least in the short term. Nonetheless, they arranged for studio time back in England with Rupert Holmes at the production helm. There they cut two songs for a single that was ultimately shelved, I Want to Hold Your Hand, back with England, but nonetheless eventually opted to stick with Holmes as producer for their next album. Eventually is the operative word here, as Sparks was already a few weeks into immersing themselves in a short-lived artistic relationship with the legendary guitarist Nick Ronson before Rupert Holmes finally invited Sparks to his studio at Media Sounds to start recording. It was longtime assistant Joseph Fleury who advocated New York City as the place to be in the summer of 1976 to Ron and Russell. The punk slash new wave scene was just breaking and introducing to the music world future legends like Patti Smith, The Ramones, Television, Talking Heads, Blondie, etc., etc., the list of future pop superstars who found their first break at the fabled club CBGBs, among other NYC rock clubs that summer, would end up being one of the most auspicious in all of rock history. Now, thanks in part to Fleury's knowledge and connections, Ron and Russell had front row seats, often literally so. Electrified with fresh inspiration, Ron and Russell began to seek candidates for the new band. 
Fleury suggested Salmida as Sparks' new bassist. A native New Yorker, Salmida had actually met the male brothers several years before, back in England. He had auditioned unsuccessfully for the Kimono My House lineup and subsequently got lucky, and he recorded and toured with Roxy Music uh, before returning to his hometown and trying to break out with his own band, the Hewlett slash Fleury managed Milk and Cookies. As it happened, Midas cousin was close friends with former Bowie Axeman Mick Ronson, who was then living in a brownstone in New York. And after the males expressed their enthusiasm for the idea, a meeting was arranged. Ron and Russ were over the moon, of course, at the prospect of having Ronson as Sparks' lead guitarist. Finally, they had sought him out unsuccessfully back in England, and here he was, a free agent living in the very city Sparks had decided to record their next album. When the three arrived at Ronson's place, Ron and Russell found in Ronson an eager audience to listen to the latest material the brothers had been hashing out. Before strapping on his guitar to jam along, Ronson called out to his housemate to join in on drums. The housemate in question was one Hilly, a.k.a. Hilly Boy Michaels, himself a Sparks devotee from the earliest days. And through divine providence, it must have seemed to him, he was minutes away from realizing a years-long dream by becoming himself a member of Sparks. Recalled Hilly about that chance meeting. We plugged in and the music and energy was just incredible. We played for about two hours working on songs like Big Boy, Everybody Stupid, Throw Her Away, and I Think I Want to Be Like Everybody Else, all for the benefit of a small mono tape recorder in the corner. I thought for sure we would all just join forces and become Sparks, featuring Mick Ronson. Despite the promising start, however, Ronson ended up pulling out of any contractual agreement with Sparks. The reason given was he was made uncomfortable with the insistence of Sparks' management that Ronson become a permanent member of the band. Ronson may have been more or less a free agent, but he still had upcoming obligations with Bob Dylan and Ian Hunter, among others. So, there would be no Sparks plus Ronson supergroup, but Sparks was taken with Hilly Michael's enthusiasm and skill set at the drum kit. They just needed to woo him away from Nick Ronson, who Michaels regarded as his ostensible bandmate in waiting. By Hilly Michaels reckoning the two were just waiting for the right opportunity to get going as a band and hadn't found it yet. Ron and Russell knew how to finesse Hilly. They invited him out to lunch at one of Ron and Russell's favorite cafes, where Russell pitched him with the following. Well, you can either stay here in New York and keep doing these intensive and endless auditions for mixed band, or you can join us and play for thousands of screaming fans with hundreds of young girls trying to rip your clothes off. Whether or not Hilly took Russ completely seriously, he was sold. Fortuitously, as it ended up, as Ronson still hadn't assembled a band by the end of the year. Now a four-piece. Sparks then set out to recruit a guitarist. Initially, they took a shine to Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen, but he had insisted on having a hand in songwriting, which was a total non-starter for the two brothers. After a dejected Ron and Russell went as far as to mull a move back home to L.A., Salmina finally suggested that they take a look at Jeff Salen, who had been playing with a local group called Tough Darts. 
Although initially, and understandably, intimidated upon hearing those demo tapes with Ronson and being told to, quote, play like that, Salen ended up proving his mettle. And so Sparks Mark III was set. It was around the time Sparks were needing a producer to help record the new songs that Rupert Holmes popped back into the picture. To apologize for his tardiness in taking on the new Sparks project, Holmes delivered a hilariously inappropriate apology gift in the form of a dozen red roses and a box of chocolates. It was a gesture befitting of a guy who had taken a straightforward song like I Want to Hold Your Hand and inflated it and gilded it until it transmogrified into a ridiculously bloated and syrupy sweet disco anthem, all in partnership with, by the way, and with the blessing of Sparks. Keeping the experience of that one bizarre single in mind, it boggles the mind why Ron and Russ, who were steadfast in taking the very opposite aesthetic approach to their new album that they did with I Want to Hold Your Hand, why they hopped aboard the Holmes production train as readily as they did. Holmes must have done a serviceable job convincing Sparks that he too was angling to produce a lean, pared-down rock album, even if it wasn't the kind of thing his resume could boast at that point. Or maybe Sparks were riding a creative high that they knew wouldn't last and they simply wanted to strike while the iron was hot. As it happened, Holmes had inspiration of his own. His motivation, it was soon revealed, was a worryingly short turnaround order coming down from the label. Sparks' management had managed to sign them with Columbia Records to distribute the new album stateside. Columbia's reach and influence were vast, so it would be a worthwhile sacrifice and an acceptable risk to work under less-than-ideal conditions if the final product would pay off in the end. Columbia had the potential to offer what neither Bearsville nor Island Records ever could, cultural relevance in Sparks' home country, strong record sales there, and a toehold in the American music scene that Sparks had found so elusive up to that point. The production of the new album was fraught with tension from the get-go. With less than three weeks to rehearse, record, edit, and master, the band would have their work cut out for them and even more so for Rupert Holmes than for anyone else. As he explained, When I began work on it, Columbia Records had already set a release date, and it was ridiculously close at hand. They told me that I had to print the LP jacket before I'd begun work on the album, or they'd miss the release date. Insanely, this meant I had to give CBS the song titles and their sequence on the album before we recorded them. Holmes wasn't alone, however, in worrying about the consequences of pushing back too hard on Columbia. If it suited the label, they could kick the new release date six months down the road, which would have been devastating for the band's momentum. And so, a minimalist production approach was agreed upon by all parties. There were to be only the five players on the record and no additional music overlays. The one real aesthetic quality on the album that would stand out and come to define the sound of Big Beat is something for which Holmes cheerfully takes credit. The drum sound on Hilly Michael's kit was to be the centerpiece and trademark of the album, and I take some credit for creating that. The recordings took place in Studio A at Media Sound, an odd-looking building for a music studio. Once a church, 
Its high vaulted ceilings served a new purpose by adding a feeling and sound of grandiosity to the music that was performed underneath. It was a hectic space with different producers from different concerns occupying the space at different times, usually throughout the entire day. Interestingly, the music for Sesame Street was recorded there most mornings, a piece of a piece of trivia which conjures up tantalizing imaginings of Ron and Russ getting chummy with Ernie, Kermit, Grover, and the rest of the Muppet gang. It would have been a surprisingly satisfying merger of two creative worlds, both basically benign but undeniably oddball in their own ways. Holmes had a three-day weekend in which to complete all of the albums mixing in order to meet Columbia's deadline. To his credit, he pulled off the task, and he sent the deliverables to Columbia in time for a U.S. release of October 25, 1976. Now, I'm going to save all the talk of the critical and commercial reception that Big Beat ended up earning for the next episode. Right now, let's dive right into the songs of Big Beat, part one. For this episode, I've decided to go beyond just the first side of the original record. You see, CD releases of Big Beat in the 90s and 2000s added several crucial bonus tracks. I will be taking a look at all 16 of those tracks, all the tracks together. So in an effort to split down the middle, I'll explore the first eight songs of Big Beat here and save the latter eight for the next episode. The album makes good on its title right out the gate. Hilly Michael's drums, compressed though they may be, come thundering out of the speakers, banging out a simple propulsive pattern. He's buffeted by a guttural one-note guitar blast courtesy Jeff Salen. Just an E power chord. All muddy gain, no frills. As Hilly works up to a crescendo, Salen bothers to throw in a brief move up, three half steps to a G power chord, and then right back down again. Presumably to give himself something to do, Ron bangs out eighth note chords on a barely audible piano. If a bass guitar is being played at all, it's only there to punctuate the monster drums. About 23 seconds in, Hilly's drums break like a fever, and then, like a hot rod racer, the first song on Big Beat comes peeling out and takes the on-ramp onto Rock's own highway. Big Boy kicks off Big Beat by pummeling you into submission to Sparks' new hard-driving sound. The music says, okay, so you complain all this time that Sparks didn't have balls? Shut up. Handle these balls. Huh, gross. As the first verse starts, Salen dampens his chords and steps aside for Russell's debut. And while no one will confuse him for Gene Simmons, there's something different about Russell's register here. It sounds... Ah, damn it, it sounds like a grown man's voice. And while Russell still can't muster anything resembling a growl or convey much edge or threat, there's something nonetheless alarming and off-putting about his wide-eyed Carnival Barker delivery, his rounded-out tenor issuing monotone warnings like a message following an air raid siren. It could pass for a young Mark Mothersbaugh, whose art-punk band Devo was just then struggling to break through. The earth is shaking, so am I, Russell declares. If you don't run, it's suicide. And then he takes us directly to the chorus, since it clearly has us cornered. Big boy. 
going high on big and low on boy. And again, big boy. Then the band scrambles noisily to make way for the eponymous big boy, belching out frenzied chords based on A or A5, then down to G or G5. Uh, my, my vote is with the latter choices. Big boy doesn't sound like it was composed with mixed modalities in mind, made up of full major chords or minor chords. I think they're power chords. It sounds like uh, Salem is dishing out a tight fistful of uh, simple power chords uh, before regrouping for another tense verse. My name is David. He don't care. He's never nice. He's never scared. And then another mad scramble and Hilly's drums set us up for the song's chorus. The chorus is an E like the verses, but louder, more rocking, and Ron's piano sounds like the warning bell at a train crossing before the arm swings down. Big Boy comes around, throws his weight around, throws our girls around, leaves without a sound. Big Boy. At the bridge, still chugging along an E, intimidating male voices shout out the songs, title one syllable at a time. Big Boy. Big Boy. Like a war chant for meathead bullies. Next, momentary hell breaks loose as a cacophonous wail of guitar solo leads the other players through a few moments of barely contained sonic chaos. More about that uh, guitar section in a moment. And the song resumes its relentless thundering through two more verses. He's well equipped. The girls are sure. Is that a guess or something more? Big boy. Big boy. We're bored to tears until he comes, and then we're crying because he's come. Now, Ron isn't bothering with abstract innuendo here. He's using, uh, uncomfortably, direct language to portray the much-feared big boy as a sexual menace, not just a bully. The final 40 seconds or so ride out on E with the booming call and response of big boy lording over the song's end, bringing the song into submission by brute force. From a lyrical standpoint, as pointed out earlier, Ron has simplified his language and he's stripped it of whatever abstractions or poetic meanderings that an earlier version might have had on a similarly themed song. Tony Visconti once declared that American rock music is all meat and potatoes. Well then, Ron would serve up meat and potatoes for American palates on Big Beat. There are no references to Yehudi Menduin or French bistros on Big Beat, and he has decided to leave little for us to decipher or second guess. The marker is laid down with Big Boy, a straightforward song about a relatable narrator cowering in fear from a known bully. The narrator could in fact be the same character from earlier songs such as How Are You Getting Home or The Lady Is Lingering, unmistakable in his physical meekness, his social anxieties, and his primal fear of being cut out from the mating scene by the unearned confidence and prowess of the big, dumb, alpha male. In Big Boy, the only weapon our narrator has to fight back with is the song itself, ridiculing the vulgar, shallow, and unself-aware Big Boy, even if he has to do so from a safe distance. The sound of Big Boy is big, dumb, and simple. The aim of the aesthetic here is to make fun of the big, the dumb, and the simple. To these ears, it's a successful mission. Although the star of the show here is almost always Hilly Michaels and his drums, on Big Boy there is a great rare highlight from Jeff Salen in his chaotic, nearly atonal guitar solo uh, played at one point. Uh, as it happens, that part of the song was shaped into its final form by Rupert Holmes, as he explains it, 
We couldn't come up with a guitar break that sounded nihilistic enough for my tastes, so I recorded Jeff playing eight random guitar solos without regard to rhythm or key. Then I laid all eight solos side by side, mixed this completely random octet into two studio tracks, and cut them into and out of the rhythm track. Pay attention to that solo when you hear it. You'll end up wishing there was more of that controlled chaos elsewhere on the album. But now, here's a big boy. Track 2 begins with a grinding garage rock riff 
based on nothing but another E-power chord and its dominant 7, churning relentlessly in a way that might point towards blues if it were in the hands of another band, one who wasn't religiously anti-blues. I Wanna Be Like Everybody Else is possibly the most punk-sounding song on the album, with an unfussy and direct verse-chorus-verse structure, straightforward lyrics sung without fanfare, basic rock and roll instrumentation, and everything wrapped up in under three minutes, it's one of the purest pleasures on the album. The only indulgence is the use of a whole seven chords in the song, as opposed to the punk rock standard of only three or four. Ron dons the mantle of the alienated suburban teenager, once again, in his lyrics for the song, with only a half-wink, Ron's misfit narrator pines for the comfort and safety of social conformity. Russell, still in impudent teenager mode, sings, Dressing up when the world is Levi Strauss, Dressing down when tuxedos fill the house, Going out when the rest are coming home, Coming home when the rest are going out. And when I'm broke and really down, everybody's throwing tons around, and when I finally get my pay, everyone's in India, or so they say, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like everybody else. I want to be like everybody else. Gravity don't work on me. I want to be like everybody else. Drink your milk, then your coke, then you're right. First you're born, then you live, then you die. First you cry, then you sing, then you moan. First you're wet, then you're dry. Then your bone. It's such a one, two, three affair. Where did I go wrong? I'm stuck out here. I'm stuck. It's up to you. Hold me tight. They think I'm you. Are the lyrics an ironic sneer toward the banality of suburban life and its unambitious inhabitants? Or is this an earnest anthem and sympathy of all the desperate weirdos who can find no place for themselves in a society that prizes conformity above all else? If only I could just be normal. Like most of Ron's underdog characters, there's clearly some affection offered towards the song's anti-hero, but it's unlikely the lyric sentiments are meant to be digested exactly as they are. Ironic detachment runs thick through Big Beat, and that irony flows right through the heart of I Want to Be Like Everybody Else. Interestingly, the Sparks fan club newsletter that introduced the song prior to its release compared the narrator of the song to The Catcher in the Rise, Holden Caulfield. I can see it. Ron's musical contributions are almost completely inaudible on the track, uh, if in fact he's present at all. Salin's fuzz guitar keeps things mostly economical, with few flourishes, although he changes up his riff slightly during the final verse. He also gives an appropriately jarring riff that leads the song's middle eight. Instead of a solo, he simply sweeps a chord down the fretboard in a single swoop several times. The effect is somewhere between mind-numbing and harrowing. Salin also gives us an honest-to-God solo to close out the song's final 16 seconds. It's brief, it's fun, it's functional, although it is weird to hear blue notes in a spark song. Sal Maida's bass adds a melodic bounce with his understated bass line. Once again, though, this is really Hilly Michael's show. It's his powerful, steady, driving rhythms that give the song its visceral impact. Two songs in, if there were lingering questions about the meaning of the album's title, Hilly's head-snapping work on the skins leaves no doubt who has brought the big beat to Big Beat. A final note about what's going on here compositionally, although the song is ostensibly centered around a D, once again, it's probably a power chord, the presence of the C natural chord instead of a C sharp in part of the chorus 
definitely means that there are mixed modalities going on in the song. It's also the second song where flats and sharps are completely avoided, as well as minor chords, I guess just to simplify things as much as possible. Let's have a listen to I Want To Be Like Everybody Else. Pressing up when the world is the vast rouse Pressing down when tuxedos fill the house Track three on Big Beat was famously one of Joy Ramones' favorite Spark songs, one that reportedly he could never convince his band to cover. It's easy to see why the tune struck a power chord with Joey. Nothing to do may be more mannered than anything on the Ramones' debut album, but it shares a similar thread of ennui and recklessness that gives songs like Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue some of their nihilistic glee. Like the song preceding it, Nothing to Do is the closest Sparks dare to approach the then-nascent punk aesthetic. Truth be told, it's closer to the more polished pop-punk sound that Cheap Trick would formulate and popularize a year or two later. 
Lyrically, the song appears to be a straightforward lament about adolescent boredom, although as is usually the case with adolescent boredom, it's also a song about sexual frustration, most likely from a white hetero male point of view. The narrator could well be the same one from the first two tracks, that same awkward suburban teen stewing in his own unease with himself, gazing up at the kiss poster on his bedroom wall. Russell certainly sings like he's the same guy, all wobbly, uncomfortable tenor one minute, and desperate yelping the next, reaching desperately for something or someone, but never sure where to direct his aim. It's a fascinating new vocal characterization, by the way, that Russell is trying on all over Big Beat, and it's quite a change from the glass-cutting falsetto from previous Sparks albums. No doubt Ron and Russ thought it would be a voice that American rock music listeners could identify better with, and it's a trick that usually works, and without sacrificing any of Russ's technical vocal skills. The song starts with its focus again on Haley Michael's drums, which help lock in a set of ascending piano chords from Ron, making up an intro that sounds more than a little like the Beatles' twist and shout. Then the song settles into A major, a new groove established this time with a more noticeable presence of Sal Midas bass, but with Hilly upstaging again, bashing the snare on every beat of the measure, and unloading with raucous fills to join the verses with the choruses. Hilly spends much of the song writing the cymbal, making Nothing to Do one of the crashiest sounding Spark songs yet, and hinting toward the controlled chaos kind of sound of later Sparks drummer David Kendrick. The other players are keeping things, frankly, perfunctory, um, although disciplined might be a more accurate descriptor. Compositionally, we've, we've got meat and potatoes here on our musical plate with a scant five chords, all playing together nice in the key of A. Ron has a clear idea of how the line better drop the requirement that everything be great should be honored with this simple but irresistible banger of a song. I want you. I want you bad. I need you. I need you. I do. I really do. Better drop the requirements that everything be great. Nothing to do. Nothing to do. Nothing to do. Nothing to do. I come home. I throw my coat down. I spin round. I plop down. Give me a break. A break. Better drop the requirement that everything be great. Repeat chorus. If I had a million thumbs, I'd twiddle, twiddle, but I just have two. I see you. I don't want much. Just something. A little something to do, to do. Better drop the requirement that everything be great. Here's nothing to do. Drop the requirement There's everything 
Song four proves that you can't keep Ron Mayle from going high concept on his lyrics for long. I Bought the Mississippi River is one of those songs about having a sudden, massive responsibility falling in one's lap as a result of one's recklessness with one's own power. Musically, Sparks takes a step away from the low-slung power chord grinders we've heard so far, and they revisit some of the same dark cabaret vibe that characterized... Uh, the more mesmerizing portions of their first two albums, uh, High C in particular. Structurally, though, Mississippi is more in line with the closely drawn lines of the majority of Big Beat. It might sound a bit like uh, that former album's High C. It might sound a bit like High C or Nothing is Sacred at the outset, but the band takes none of the rhythmic detours or flights of fancy that characterize the adventurous but sometimes unfocused strains of those uh, first two albums. I Bought the Mississippi River is the most grandiose sounding of Big Beats, uh, 16 tracks if you're counting the uh, demo, uh, 16 tracks uh, if you're counting the bonus tracks. Owing in at least some part to Ron's use of a full-sized grand piano, which he would drag along with him during the supporting tour. The song begins with a two-chord punch from Ron's grand, and then the rest of the band follows suit, riffing off alternating C minor and G sharp chords, buffeted by a propulsive Marshall beat from Hilly. The song's intro takes 20 seconds to build tension, sounding like a storm brewing, and then after a feint from both Ron and Hilly, Ron's riff rings out from his piano soundboard to set the stage for the first verse. I bought the Mississippi River, Russell intones matter-of-factly. Of course, that don't include the towns or the people around the Mississippi. 
and the band kicks back into the stormy cabaret groove as Russell goes on to explain his improbable dilemma. Well, to cinch the deal, the man threw in a boat with crew, and then I knew I'd better grab that river fast. It wouldn't last. They never do. They never do. It wouldn't last, last, last. So now I own the Mississippi. I couldn't decide if I should leave it there or lug it out west with me. The best thing was to think about it, not to make a move I might regret, because then I'd have to... Because then I'd have to have the Mississippi sent back east, complete with boat and crew. That wouldn't do. Do, do. It's mine. All mine. You know, it's yours. All yours. It's mine. All mine. You know, it's yours. All yours. Do rivers ever need companions? Should I inquire if the sign is available? Yeah. I would rather have a classy little Frenchie than a Nile or a Tybo. Oh, now, wait a minute. How about the Amazon? Now that could be real fun for Mississippi. For Mississippi. For Mississippi. My Mississippi. I hope that I didn't make an error. I hope this ain't a lot more trouble than it's all really worth. At under two and a half minutes, it's a brief song, which is honestly about as long as the joke at the center of the tune could support its own premise, but it's plenty of time for the musical drama of the proceedings to reach a melodramatic climax buffeted by a searing synth line, one of the few on the album, and Jeff Salen's trebly guitar playing havoc over Healy and Salmida's thundering rhythm section. The faux bombast and lightweight wordplay of I Bought the Mississippi River together do a good job reminding the listener not to take everything that you're hearing too seriously, or at least not too literally uh, I did happen to read, by the way, in one of my sources, that one of the inspirations for the song was a uh, a story that had come out around that time of the London Bridge being purchased by an American and moved brick by brick across the Atlantic. This song is yet another reminder that this album is not Kiss-style cock rock nor the defiant posturing of rage and punk. Certainly not completely. Ron retooled the sentiment behind the lyrics later in 1994 with the equally exhilarating Now That I Own the BBC. Here's I Bought the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River Of course that don't include the towns Or the people around the Mississippi Oh well, the sinks, the deal, the man We're in a boat through And then I knew I'd better grab that river fast It wouldn't last They never do They never do It wouldn't last, last, last So now I own the Mississippi I couldn't decide if I should leave it in there out west Oh, well, the best was to think about it Not to make the move I might regret Cause then I'd have to have the Mississippi Sent back east Complete with boat and crew That wouldn't do, do, do It's mine, oh mine It's yours, oh yours It's mine, oh mine It's 
does ever need companions? Should I inquire if the stage is available? Yeah, I would rather have a classic little Frenchie than a Nile or a Tebow. Song five on Big Beat, side one, is Filler Up. Aside from having the dubious distinction of being one of a pair of songs featured in the disaster movie Roller Coaster, Filler Up was also the B-side of Big Beat's first single, Big Boy, which was the other song featured in the movie Roller Coaster, by the way. With its simple yet syncopated drum beat underpinning the tune and its giddily simplistic riffing and noodling on Jeff Salen's grungy guitar, it's easy to see why director Goldstone thought he was getting a lesser-known Kiss clone in Sparks when he first listened to Fill Her Up. On first blush, it bears a better-than-passing resemblance to garage stompers like Strutter or Kissin' Time. Russell's frequent primal howling into the microphone even sounded a bit like Gene Simmons's earthy wail. If any song on Big Beat sounds like a parody of the music it's aping, it is filler up. It's raucous, rowdy, and it's unencumbered by subtlety, either in words or music. Its arrangements, like much garage rock of the period, is rooted in early 50s rock and roll, but played with an abandon carried over from glam rock and married to a sped-up, punk-like rhythm. Taken for what it is, Filler Up can be a fun listen. It is a fun listen. And because this is Ron Mayle's song, the car-themed lyrics could really be about anything, including even cars. Uh, you be the judge. One gallon for that certain start. Two gallons once around the park. I don't need any servicing, just fill her up with anything. Five gallons gets me up the hill. Six gallons, I don't need no pills. I'm never going to stop again. So fill her up with premium. Ten gallons, everyone's a her. Eleven gallons, I'm a blur. I'm coming and I'm going. So fill her up with premium. Twelve gallons gets me out of town where no one's poor or black or brown. And nothing ever seems to change. I'm past all that. Just fill her up. 15 gallons, more, more, 20 gallons, more, more. I feel like I'm running out of steam. So fill her up with gasoline. Fill me up with premium. Fill me up with anything. Hmm. Uh, is this the ironic flip side to Queen's I'm in love with my car? Or are those multitudinous gallons in question a reference to a certain recreational white powder that Ron and Russ saw used as the fuel that certain industry types filled up on so indiscriminately. <clears throat> the breakneck tempo of the song leads credence to that hypothesis, but it's ultimately unclear what the real interpretation is. Uh, a true artifact of its time, up to and including that uh, casually tossed-off racist line. Uh, here's Fitzgerald. Oh, oh, oh. 
The final song on Big Beat Side 1 is the deliciously misanthropic Everybody Stupid. It could even be read as Ron Mayle's opinion of any of the extras who headbanged on camera to Sparks' onstage performance of Filler Up, or to anyone who actually enjoyed the movie Roller Coaster. Of course, Roller Coaster the movie would not exist until well into the next year, but the sneering posture of Everybody Stupid toward the common hoi polloi of the day is unmistakable. Now, a critic of Sparks' music like, say, Robert Crisgow, no doubt would decry the lyrics of Everybody Stupid as elitist and condescending. Chances are, however, Ron's sentiment hits home somewhere within you. I'll admit, it does with me. And besides, implicit in Ron's framing of everybody is that I'm stupid too, and so are you, and so is he. As Mark Mothersbaugh was making the case that year in Akron, Ohio, we're all Devo. Like many of the other cuts on Big Beat, particularly on side one, the music is cut from the same aesthetic cloth as the lyrics. Everybody stupid minds similar musical terrain as filler up early rock and roll revival. But instead of going off the rails with the beats per minute, here the players slow the pace to a rollicking mid-tempo bounce. Like the song's companions on the album, most of the guitar work here consists of stabs of power chords in a common key, D, here, buoyed by Ron's rhythmic piano chords. But the song's sonic foundation yet again lay in Hilly Michael's pummeling drum pattern, fixed in place like dried concrete. Russell continues his anguished, bored guy vocal posturing, and he seems to take relish in every proclamation he makes that everybody's stupid, that's for sure. You fell for me, I fell for you. You think I'm great, I think you're good. And that's enough to prove the point once more. Everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Oh yeah, everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Oh yeah, everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Everybody's stupid, that's for sure. I light my filter, then reverse it, and burn a mouth that's weak on verbs and nouns and nouns, but I'm not sore. Everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Repeat chorus. I traded you for Gene and Myra. I traded them for the Mormon choir. Now I got some music and the Lord, and I'm feeling dumber than before. Ron's being even cheekier than usual with the lyrics here, starting off with a vague reference to Groucho Marx's quip about not wanting to belong to any club that would have him as a member. And then at the end of the song, Ron, then at the end of the song, Ron drops a plot twist on us by having our narrator trade in girls for the seminary. Further evidence of his own membership in the club of stupid people. Wrapping up side one of Big Beat, here's Everybody's Stupid. <laughs> That's for sure. 
I light my filter, then reverse it And burn a mouth, it's a week on verbs And nouns and nouns, but I'm not sore Everybody's stupid, that's for sure 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 Everybody's stupid Everybody's stupid, that's for sure. 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 Yeah, everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Oh, everybody's stupid, that's for sure. Everybody's stupid. like they saved all the misogyny for side two. Kicking off the second half of Big Beat is one of several of Ron's more politically incorrect lyrics, the dizzy and ditzy, throw her away and get a new one. Before we dive headfirst into the decidedly unenlightened views about gender relations at the heart of throw her away, this is a good time to remember Ron Mayle is a songwriter who revels in irony and Big Beat is so full of ironic sentiment it's practically about irony. So, as we explore songs about disposing of women like napkins, or even more uncomfortably, uh, whiteness being a make-or-break criteria and a potential mate, it'll be more useful to think of these songs and others like them primarily as character studies and secondarily as commentary about the points of view contained therein. All that woke culture-era cautioning aside, however... One wonders if Ron would dare to record or release songs with lyrics like these some two generations later. 
throw her away and get a new one keeps one foot planted in the neo-garage rock of most of side one, but there is also a move towards the then-emerging new wave style that creeps into the song. You can hear it in the song's streamlined production. It's focused on tight melodies, simple yet melodic bass lines, and Russell's alienated everyman vocal yelp, similar almost to the type of delivery that say, David Byrne or Tom Verlaine would soon employ to great effect. Finally, breaking through Rupert Holmes' somewhat muddied production on Throw Her Away are the bass stylings of Sal Mida. Although rarely complex, his bass lines here are made of lots of busy, quick arpeggios and intervals. His jumps up and back down the fretboard for the notes underneath the song's chorus help elevate the song to a higher level of catchiness. Here are the aforementioned lyrics, all in their male chauvinist glory. Just like everything else in this world, time wreaks havoc on every girl. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Throw her away and get a new one. If you've got a girl with elegant taste, it's only a matter of time. Bowling or root beer or taking the train, a girl in her decline. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one, a new one. Just like everything else in this world, changes come to the strongest of girls. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Throw her away and get a new one. Now, may we present, she's top of the line in 1959 in top-notch shape, but it's always the same. It's only a matter of time. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one, a new one. If you've got a girl, better look at her waist. If you've got a girl, better check out her face. Or maybe it's only a change in your taste. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one. Throw her away and get a new one, a new one. Here's that song. Hey 
If you recall episode 15's discussion about Ron and Russell's ill-fated would-be collaboration with French film legend Jacques Tati, you may recall Sparks did actually manage to record one song for the aborted film project. That song, known either as Confusion or Intrusion or Confusion Intrusion, was dusted off the shelf and retooled for inclusion on Big Beat. While CD re-releases of Big Beat in the 90s and 2000s featured the original unused recording as one of several bonus tracks, the first pressings of Big Beat featured only the newer 1976 version. Uh, we'll get to that later version, or I, uh, we'll get to that earlier version when I do part two of Big Beat. If Sparks had a tentative foot planted in new wave music and throw her away and get a new one, the other shoe seems to have dropped with the even more new wave sounding confusion. Instead of fuzzed out guitars and rock and roll drums cranked to 11, the driving musical motif at the heart of confusion consists of a sparse riff played on a guitar with the gain turned way down this time and replaced with a bright chiming Tonality, similar to the kind of guitar sound future new wavers the pretenders would employ. For example, this uh, simple guitar lick interlocks with the rhythm section, which spends much of the song creating a steady rhythmic pulse. In other words, confusion is less rock and more pop, which of course is where most of Sparks' musical future would lie after Big Beat. Ron even brings along some of the same kind of electronic experimentation he explored in his recent work with ex-bandmate Earl Mankey. In this song's middle eight, instead of a guitar solo, Ron plays the song's main melody on an alien-sounding synthesizer on a detuned setting. And here are the lyrics. I'm going back to see my girl. I hope it's all the same as then. I'm going back to see my girl. I hope it's all the same as then. Confusion. Pardon the intrusion. This must not be the room I was in the other night. Confusion, an optical illusion. You see, you see. The number's the same as then. The color's the same as then. But something just isn't really right. Retrace your steps and see what happens. Happens right from the doorway to your home. Back to your lonely room with only confusion. Was that her? Yes, yes, it was. Was that him? Yeah, yeah, it was. The girl was familiar, but he wasn't me, no. Confusion, you think you know where you stand, but you're not even standing, you're flat on shaky ground. No clue then, and everything you knew then was only true in specialized cases. Yes, in specialized cases. But in your case, it wasn't true at all. Retrace your steps and see what happens, happens back to the day when you were born. Father and mother were just pictures, photos. The color was the same as yours. The surname? Same as yours. But you got the feeling, the feeling, the feeling, confusion, la tati. Confusion, oh pardon me, confusion, la tati. It's lovely sitting here next to you. There's no one within miles of you. It's lovely sitting next to you. There's no one within miles of you. Confusion, you think you know where you stand, but you're not even standing. You're flat on shaky ground. No clue then. And everything you knew then was only true in specialized cases. Yes, in specialized cases. But in your case, in your case, it wasn't the case. Not at all. And here's confusion. To 
as then I'm going back to see my girl I hope it's all the same as then Confusion, oh pardon the intrusion This must not be the room I was in the other night Confusion, an optical illusion You see, you see the numbers The same as then, the colors The same as then, something just isn't really right Retrace your steps and see Was that him? The girl was familiar, but he was in need of confusion. Thinking of where you stand when you're not even standing, you're flat on shaky ground. No clue then, and everything you knew then was only true in specialized cases. Specialized cases, but in your case, it wasn't true at all. out our exploration of Big Beat Part 1. I know, where did the time go, right? But have no fear, I'll be back with Part 2 in due time. Until then, Sparks fans, here's Christian Huey telling you all, nothing travels faster than the speed of light, they'll tell you. But what they're telling you is clearly wrong. See you next time. Okay, I'm not letting myself get off that easy. Nor are you. Uh, I don't talk much about my personal life on the show, but uh, I feel like this whole COVID moment gives us all a chance and a duty to at least give a nod to our shared humanity, uh, and more specifically to share the profound loss that this pandemic has brought into many of our lives uh, in sometimes the most intimate and earth-shaking ways. 
My father, Bill Huey, uh, passed away this last July. He was only 60. He had lots more living to do, but just uh, got stopped short. COVID-19 didn't infect his body, but it infected his work, his world, and his soul. I had to put this podcast on the back burner while I tried to sort out what this new order that my life has taken on, what it would look like. Uh, I did pick up this project again, finally, due in no small part to the uh, incredible warmth and support of my listeners uh, and uh, other Sparks fans on the internet. Since this pandemic began, I've been enjoying uh, sharing virtual company with folks all over the world who are, you know, at least uh, in part finding comfort and secure in the music of Sparks. A couple of them I've even had on the show. Um, I'm closing out this episode uh, sharing the kind of thing that I don't often share with the world, and that's my own music. I wrote and recorded the song Mr. Bill as a tribute to my father. Um, now, my dad, Bill, he identified with the hapless TV claymation character Mr. Bill. Uh, if you don't know anything about Mr. Bill, just Google it. It'll all make sense to you uh, soon. Mr. Bill was how my dad presented himself to the world. Uh, lifelong friends and work acquaintances and, and people that he just met while camping or scuba diving, they all knew my dad as Mr. Bill. And uh, so I uh, wrote and recorded this song called Mr. Bill. I miss him. I wish he were still here. up and 
permitted to step away. Mr. Bill must fend off every attack. Mr. Bill is entirely fashioned from clay. Oh no, oh no. Get out of my curtain way.